at oalaig.org, where you will find several speaker feeds with over 800 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. The opinions expressed on the Light a Candle podcast are those of individual OA members and do not represent OA as a whole. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Dan Kay. I don't think I need this little stuff. <laughs> um, hi, everybody. Thank um, what? Did someone just say something? Hi, everybody. Um, my name is Dan. I'm a recovering anorexic. Hi, Dan. I'm glad to be here tonight. And, um, yeah, it's, it's really good to be here. And thank you, Susan, for asking me to come. Um, I, I love the... I love in the, the opening that it says that we share our, our experience, strength, and hope. And I, I really love hearing that because I don't... I'm not a motivational speaker. I'm not here to, like, enlighten anybody. I feel like what really drew me to OA in the beginning was when I first got here, I just saw people standing up and talking about their truth and being honest. And that was so much more inspirational to me, someone just being honest about their story than anything I'd ever heard on Oprah Winfrey or anything I'd ever seen at some, like, spiritual New Age lecture. So um, I really believe in that. Um, so what happened, uh, what it was like, um, I came to OA in 1990, and, um, and also I just want to share this too, you know, I shared at this meeting about a year and, what, three months ago or something, so I'm, I have this little voice in my head that's saying, don't repeat yourself, don't repeat yourself, you have to say something new, and I, I just can't do that for you guys, I just have to like open my mouth and, and tell my story, so, um, so I came to OA in 1990, and I... I was 20 years old, and I um, had a roommate that was a compulsive reader, and I was obsessed with food, and I was obsessed with only eating non-fat cottage cheese and fat-free pineapple, and um, so much so that I developed a severe dairy allergy from only, literally only eating cottage cheese for like three years, and... Um, but I was obsessed with food, and I thought, well, then you go to OA, because I have a, a, a friend who's in OA, so that's what you do, you go to OA. So I went to OA, and just just so wasn't ready at all. I, I was raised in an alcoholic home. Um, I was raised in um, what I now see as incredible emotional and psychological abuse. Um, I say that because a big part of my recovery has been not blaming my family of origin, but looking at my family of origin through the eyes of truth and seeing the reality of the situation. And that has been a big awakening in my recovery. And a big part of my recovery, and I, I usually get to this later, but a big part of my recovery is no longer um, carrying what is not my responsibility. Um, for me, anorexia... If it isn't self-directed anger, I don't know what is, you know, to starve someone to death, to starve myself to death. Um, 
when I was 20 years old, I, I came to, like I said, I came to OA, wasn't ready to hear about anorexia, wasn't ready to face anything like that. I just thought, if you're obsessed with food, you're a compulsive reader, and that's what it is. So I thought it was a compulsive reader. I went into the rooms. Something kind of weird happened on a phone call. I went to like six meetings, and then I left. That was it. But I did get the tool of writing down my food. I wrote down my food religiously, and it became a great tool of control for me. I would eat, and then I would write down what I ate, and I would put a big dark line underneath it, like, now you've stopped eating. And that worked for me for five years. Um, it, well, it worked for me for five years. So um, I had also, in this family I grew up in, um, my mother was horribly abused as a child, and her answer to getting abused as a child was to join a religious cult. So I had a lot of um, very dark things around spirituality, and you know, and as a matter of fact, anorexia and spirituality for me became fused. They really became one thing. I thought I was being spiritual when I was starving myself. I thought that you know, wanting food was unspiritual, and wanting sex was unspiritual, and wanting to shop was unspiritual. And so I had to really, um, I've had to really, you know redefine what a higher power is in this in this recovery but anyway so five years go by and now I'm you know it's 1995 and um, I'm living in another part of town and I considered myself a member of OA but by this point the food thoughts were like possession literally I was like possessed with food thoughts so much so that I thought they might become audible at some point um, they were that loud in my brain and I, I really think they may have become audible at, at little brief moments but um, but still thinking I was a compulsive reader and um, I was a, my, my sort of going anorexic weight was like 145, 150 which is about 35 pounds less than I am now then when I got into OA and started, I got into OA in 1995 through a series of events, kind of very higher power inspired, and um, I started losing more and more weight, taking chips and candles as a compulsive reader, still thinking that because I was obsessed with food, I must be a compulsive reader, so I kept taking chips and candles, and um, lost more and more weight and more and more weight, and my bottom was nine months into OA, I was working the steps with a very, very sick sponsor, they always say you pick the sponsor you need, that was the sponsor I needed to work out my sickness, and he was just as sick as I was, and even sicker, and, um, and we worked it out together, <laughs> trust me, and um, uh, it was crazy, but you know what? That's what I needed. That's where I was at. And I always, I always, I always think of like coming into OA as kind of being dropped in the middle of a jungle, and like those were the tools I had. You know, I had those tools on that reality show. That's all I had, and um, and I had to like fight my way out of that jungle with those tools, and um, and those are the tools from my family of origin. And I started working it out. And when I came to OA, you know, I, the thing that really got me, you know, and, and in that five-year period, I sort of had discovered sort of Los Angeles New Age spirituality. And, um, you know, which was good. Like, I needed that to get away from the cult that I was raised in. And, um, but again, it had fused with my anorexia. So um, coming into OA... I really just went in to just kind of soak up spiritual juices. And, and I, I remember thinking... If I just go into OA, then these food thoughts will go away. And I do remember praying to my higher power at the time. I don't know what my higher power was back then, but it wasn't the higher power I have now. But praying and saying, please don't ever make me go go back to OA with those horrible, horrible people. And um, <laughs> I know that's a joke, but I really did say that. I really felt that way. And it's because the reality in OA really scared me. It really scared me. And you guys really, really scared me. And um, 
so anyway, I feel like I'm spending a lot of time about what happened. So I, I got nine months in, working the steps of a crazy sponsor, thinking I'm a compulsive reader. My hair is falling out. I'm less than 130 pounds and dark circles under my eyes. But the big kicker about that distortion was that I truly believed that I was overeating. I truly, truly believed that I was overeating because for me, anorexia was never a thought that I was fat. I knew I was skinny. I knew I was too skinny and I knew I didn't look good. I felt so guilty after I ate. I felt so full after I ate. I felt like I'd eaten four turkey dinners when I'd eaten a half a baked potato and carrot sticks. I really believed that I was overeating in my core of cores. And, um, but I was working the steps and I was showing up. And the thing that inspired me the most about people when I got here was people would talk about, they would say it's not about the food. They would say, you know, my, my father molested me and I put on a wall, a, a barrier, and my food was my barrier. And I heard things like that, even though I didn't have that exact story, just that very thing of like, there's some bigger, deeper, scarier thing going on that has nothing to do with food. That didn't scare me. That gave me incredible hope. Incredible hope. And because for the first time I had this little glimmer of like, maybe I'm not crazy. Maybe I'm not just this weird food person. Because before OA, that's really what I thought. I, I thought, well, I, I had two thoughts. One was, I'm this crazy food person, and it's incurable, and I'm insane. I really believe that. Or I thought, well, everybody has it. Everybody has food issues, and this is just what life is. And coming into OA, I learned both of those things are not true, that life doesn't have to be this way, and that I'm not crazy. And I just, I really want to say, I always try to put this in my share when I share at meetings that are not anorexic bulimic focus. For anybody out there tonight who's kind of angry that they got ripped off because they have to listen to an anorexic speak for, for, um, for 30 minutes or however long it is, I just want to say to you, you know, I really, I'll tell you a quick story about my friend Margo from Santa Clarita. I hope Margo's listening to this podcast. I love you, Margo. I miss you. I haven't seen her in 20 years, but... Um, Early in, this is probably about two and a half years into recovery, I was living in Santa Clarita. I'd put myself, I started to go back to school because of abstinence, and I was, I was in school full-time, and, and I was living up in Santa Clarita, and I was talking to Margo on the phone one night, and she told me the story of how she came into OA. She um, is a compulsive reader, just straight-up compulsive reader, and she uh, started, I don't, I don't know how, what led her to this, but she just lost weight very quickly. She just like did the gray sheet or did whatever sheet or whatever it was and literally lost, I don't know, 60 pounds in, I don't know, very short amount of time. And she said, you know, Dan, I didn't have the spiritual muscle to handle that level of exposure. And she said, when my weight came off, I felt naked, defenseless, and like I was walking down the street in the nude. And people would whistle at me, and I would get attention. And she said, I put all my weight back on, and much more. And I realized, when she told me that very quick story, I realized that her bigness was her protection, and her food obsession was her protection that kept people at bay. And when she told me that story, I realized my smallness is my protection. My shrinking away is my moat to keep it all away. And that's the only difference. We get there differently, but it's the same. I don't to be exposed, to stand up and be in this six-foot-five body and let people see who I am. That's my recovery. Just like it was Margot's recovery to be in her normal, beautiful body weight and to let people see who she really is. 
So that's for all of you who hate me right now. Um, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I know. I know you don't hate me. I'm kidding. So um. So anyway. So yeah. Um. I was so um so inspired by people in LA who just stood up and told the room who they were, and that just like. That was the thing I wanted. I saw people at Serenity Sunday. That was my home meeting. I saw people there in the old room, which is much better than this big new room they have. But um, uh, it was much more quaint and cozy and packed, packed. You couldn't get a seat. Does anybody remember those days back in back in the days? Um, and just people standing up there. And I saw people like owning who they were in their body, not apologizing for their existence. And whether they were bulimic or compulsive or reader or anorexic or some combination of the three, they so many people there had that like light in their eyes. And they, they just owned who they were. And I didn't know what that was, but that's why I kept coming back. And, um, and I kept coming back. I kept coming back. And... For me, it was, you know, the first couple of years was about the food. It was, they used to say, you know, it's not, a, it's, it's about the food until it doesn't have to be about the food anymore. And that was my story too. You know, I had to focus on how do I eat? Um, oh, I never, I never got to the part where I got abstinence. So I'm working with the crazy sponsor and doing the steps and got to, like, like I said, less than 130 pounds. That was my bottom. And, but because I was working the steps and going to many, many, many meetings and trying to the best of my ability to be honest about myself and my life, even though it was very convoluted at the time, um, I was like struck abstinent. It really happened for me. It just, I heard the word anorexia. Before that, people would say anorexia and I would get really angry and I would yell at them and I'd get really defensive and like, what are you talking about? And... Um, but I don't know. It was just this miracle. It was a miracle of recovery. And I heard anorexia. My de- denial lifted. And um, I started eating. And I started eating three meals a day and snacks if I needed them. And I put on over 40 pounds in three months. And I just like was like shot back to life. And I always say this, and I hope this doesn't scare anybody who's new, but I really, to me, it's very hopeful. Abstinence is where it started for me. Abstinence was the beginning of the journey. It wasn't like I got here and did all this work and then got abstinent. I got abstinent and then it, I saw the work I had to do. It wasn't like I got really healthy and then suddenly I got abstinent. No, I got abstinent and I saw, just like they used to say, if you want to find out what you're eating or not eating or barfing or not barfing or whatever you're doing, stop doing those behaviors and you're going to find out why. And that's what happened to me. You know, I got abstinent. I stopped starving. Even though I didn't think I was starving before, I stopped starving myself. I truly was starving myself. And um, the feelings came. You know, the feelings, big, 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 fat, scary feelings that I didn't didn't even have words for. And this is another story I share all the time, but it really, it really, um, it really tells the truth of what it was for me. And I, I don't know if anybody remembers Daryl, but she was sort of like, anorexic in residence in a way for all of us and so helpful and such a lovely person and she I remember calling her and crying so hard that my sides hurt like laying on the floor fetal position crying so hard that my sides hurt and she said Dan why are you crying and I said I don't know I do not know and that really scared me to have all this stuff happening and not have words for it. I, that was so, it felt so scary and out of control. And she just said, well, we're going to find out why. We're going to find out why. And then she said, the thing that really stuck with me, she said, you know, there's a reason for your anorexia. There's a reason you're anorexic. And I know some people 
share about how, you know, they're just born a compulsive reader or born an anorexic and that just works for them. And that's great. I think that's awesome. I believe those people when they say it. For me, I do not believe I was born anorexic. I believe that my anorexia um, be, was a survival tool that I picked up early in my life. Not, I, I wasn't really anorexic as a child. It was actually when I turned 20 and I came out of the closet. And I had absolutely no tools to face this big, fat, scary world. I, the only tools I had were the tools that were given to me in a very, very toxic, dysfunctional, abusive situation. And my anorexia was the thing that helped me survive. I really do believe that. So, um, I, you know, for me, it was just kind of doing that next indicated thing. You know, got abstinent, dealt with the food for a while. Pretty soon, the food starts, food thoughts started to really go away. And I started to have to really face, like, what do I want in my life? Who am I in my life? How do I feel about things? And it was like doing just those next, that next indicated thing. And that's what keep coming back to me means. Um, I celebrated 24 years of abstinence a couple of months ago, and that meant a lot to me. And um, I, all that means to me is that's 24 years of keep coming back and doing that next indicated thing. And to me, that's the power of the program. It's like, because I'm free from the food obsession, for the most part, and I do want to say that to the newcomers, I am pretty much free from food obsession. I exercise moderately. I eat pretty much whatever I want, foods that work for me. I mean, I don't eat chocolate cake for breakfast. I mean, not that I can't do that. I can. I won't binge, but it won't feel very good. So why put myself through that to talk about the food for a minute? Um, but for the most part, I have basic freedom from food. My weight has been the same for 24 years or so, and um, but the which is a gift. I mean, that abstinence is a real gift, and I'm really grateful for it. But the real, the thing I'm, I am most grateful for that, but the thing I'm also most grateful for is the life I have as a result of keep coming back, as the result of doing that next indicated recovery. I call it my, oh my God, I have to do what? <laughs> oh my God, I have to do what? In the beginning, it was putting oil-based salad dressing on my salad. About three, four months into my abstinence, I had that, that little sneaking feeling, you probably should put oil-based dressing on your salad. You know, that little tiny voice that says, if you make another mustard vinegar concoction and put it, a fat-free mustard vinegar concoction and put it on your salad... You're probably practicing your disease and just listening to that little voice. And it was like, okay, or I could go by Newman's own and put the oil on the cell. And that was the, oh my God, I was like, oh my God, are you kidding me? You know? And that just that little thing was like me saying to my higher power, I'm willing to have a bigger life. I'm willing to have a bigger life. And that is. Kind of what my recovery is about today is that willingness to be bigger and that willingness to let my life expand and let myself expand and I didn't know that for a long time I didn't know that I certainly didn't know putting oil-based salad dressing on my salad was about letting my life expand at the time I did not know that at all but looking back looking back now it was it really truly was it was that little chink in the armor that says you know what higher power, I'm just willing. I'm just willing. And then that led to more, and that led to more. And then the, oh my God, are you kidding me, was like, I'm really lonely. 
I've been single for multiple, multiple, many, many years. Now I have to date. That was a big, oh my God, are you kidding me? That was like, seriously? You know, I always liked dating men who wanted nothing to do with me. And the guys that did want something to do with me, I wanted nothing to do with. You know, it was just a classic, like, and then being victimized, like, oh, and I'm so lonely, you know? But it's like I'm running from the available ones and chasing the unavailable ones. I mean, that's just, it's so, it's like, it's kind of self-help book comedy, really, is what it is. But that was my life, you know? I, I remember once I was in West Hollywood. I didn't spend a lot of time there, but I remember once I was walking down the street in this really attractive, very nice-looking, very available, nice guy walked up to me with a big smile on his face. That was enough to make me very uncomfortable. <laughs> he came up to me and he said, he said, you know, I'd really like to date you. He said, just I, I like the most forward thing. And now that would have been, I would have been really impressed by that. Back then, I was offended. I looked at him like, oh, I mean, I just didn't even dignify that with a, with a response. But I tell that story because that's part, that was part of my conditioning, you know? I came from that. I came from that. I came from love is danger and danger is love. And dangerous love is attractive. And available love is something like, like oil on water. What am I doing here? So that was just another area of my life that I had to kind of like walk through. And I did it in abstinence. You know, and this isn't, you know, this is part of my life. It's not my life. But today I'm very happily married. You know, I have a really lovely, boring non-dramatic marriage, you know, and, and, um, and that, ins- I mean, even back in the early days of recovery, I would see people who had boring recovery marriages, and I secretly wanted it, but I just didn't have the tools to get there, and um, so that was an area, you know, I've had to look at, like, money, money anorexia, you know, for me, I always say anorexia is a life disorder, it's not a food disorder. It's absolutely a life disorder. You know, I shared that, you know, I thought sex was unspiritual. I thought buying things was unspiritual. And I've had to really trust a higher power to help me let in all areas of my life. And I really say this for the anorexics that are in the room and that are listening. You know, I've really learned that when I take in when I take in pleasure, when I take in any type of appetite and allow my appetite to live inside of me and to feel that out-of-controlness of a human appetite, when I allow that in and then, even more scary, satisfy that appetite, that is when I feel big and exposed. That is when I take up space and exist. And to stand in front of these, all of you today and say, I am a human being, I have sexual appetites, I have food appetite, I have desires for nice cars and nice shiny trinket things and expensive stuff, you know, I I always used to felt like, you know, like wanting material things made me feel dirty and gross and like, like bad, just like wanting sex made me feel dirty and wanting food made me feel dirty, you know, wanting love even made me feel dirty, I believe love was codependency. You know, I really believed as an anorexic that love was codependency. And I could even get support in the 12-step community for that. You know, and today I know that healthy love is not codependency, and I know that sexuality is not sex addiction, and I know that my desire for food is not compulsive of reading. That was the voice of anorexia, and I really want to say that to the anorexics listening. Like, my terror was if I let go of control, I will lose control. That was my terror. 
if I let myself shop, start shopping, I'm going to become a shopaholic and homeless. And if I if I if I start having sex, I'm going to become a hooker and or a sex addict. If I start whatever, you just fill in the blank. Um, I know there's a child in the room. Sorry about that. Okay, okay, good. Hi. <laughs> um, and what I what I've learned is that that is that did not happen. That fear, I'm gonna. If I let go of control, I lose control. That isn't. That did not happen. All I got was a really nice wardrobe, a really, <laughs> ni- a really nice car, a really nice husband, and a really, really nice life because I surrendered that terror. You may have to translate that for your disease. What's your version of that? What's your version of that? Oh my God, are you kidding? I have to do that. But doing that thing for me has given me an, a life truly beyond my wildest dreams. And, you know, they always used to say that we base our dreams on what we feel we are worth. And that's, that's totally my story, you know. I didn't have the self-worth to dream of the life I have today. I really didn't. I, I, I knew I wanted career success, you know, and I had this, like, vision of how it had to be, and I pushed everything else away in my life so that I could myopically focus on this one thing, and that was anorexia too, you know. I thought if I starved myself enough that I would become a great what I did and what I had always done as a child. And um, that's the opposite for me. It's by letting my life get bigger, by letting go, letting myself have fun, letting myself go on trips. You know, that's how I've gotten a better life, by just letting go. It's that third step thing of like really just... And there was a big point when I, when I met my now husband. That was a big surrender for me because I had this real obsessive focus on an artistic career and and I <laughs> I'm going to be in Europe by this time and I'm going to be doing this at this place at this time in my life and this is how my life's going to go you know <laughs> and just that none of it, it just didn't happen it didn't happen and when I met when I met my now husband it was like this is a detour this is a big, fat detour. This is not what my life is supposed to be. And I, I think I had enough recovery to go with it and just to let go and to let myself be surprised in my life, you know? This, the life I have today is not the life I planned at all. And it's so much bigger and so much better, you know? I didn't consider mid-century modern architecture when I was obsessed with singing opera, you know? Like, I didn't consider... Um, whatever, whatever it is that wasn't on my, my like list. It was that classic, classic story of when I truly let go of control of my life, my life expanded and got bigger. And it became a life that is really, truly beyond my wildest dreams. And, you know, there's that story, I share this a lot, I know it's repetitive, but it's so true. Like, I have a handful of rhinestones, and in order to get the diamonds, I have to go like this and let the rhinestones fall out completely so that I can be open for what my higher power wants for me. And I still have to do that, you know? I still have moments of like, it's got to go this way, you know? And then I surrender, and then things get better, and things get bigger, and things feel messy for a little while. You know, I have to go through that tunnel of messiness, of that, oh, it feels so uncomfortable, and like, let things be messy. And I just moved to Venice, and I have this beautiful new home in Venice, and it really is beautiful, and it's a construction site. Because it's, it was a new construction, <laughs> but I still have, I got there and there's all this stuff I have to fix. So there's all this stuff we're doing, you know, there's plastic everywhere and there's dust everywhere. And I had kind of this anorexic moment of like, this is not a nice house now, you know. 
and then and then I had that other thought that was like, or that other feeling that was like, no, it's actually still a beautiful, great house, and this is what a big, beautiful life feels like, even though it's messy. And a mantra that I often say to my higher power is higher power a prayer. Higher power, please help me let it in, even though it's not perfect. Because that was always my thing as an anorexic, is once things become perfect, then I'll let it in. Then I'll take it in. You know? If I meet the perfect guy, then I'll finally let him in. But, you know, 14 years go by and I'm still looking. We're still looking. That's not about wanting perfection. That's about wanting nothing. And I've always said, the only thing in this life that is perfect is nothing. And if I want perfect, that's code for wanting nothing. Because my anorexia is an addiction to nothingness. The thrill or the pain of nothingness. And I can do a lot of stuff thinking that I'm wanting something when really I'm pushing away. And my recovery is taking in, letting it in, let the dirtiness in. Someone said something really profound to me once on a program call. She said... She said, if I do the old behavior, it feels very comfortable in the moment, and it leads me to incredible pain. And if I do the new behavior, it feels incredibly uncomfortable in the moment. Shopping when I feel guilty about it, eating salad dressing when I feel guilty about it, having sex when I feel guilty about it. But when I do that new behavior and walk through that discomfort, it leads to incredible joy and freedom. And that's kind of it. That's that contrary action thing. So, like... How do I do that? I rely on a higher power. I call people if I'm really uncomfortable. You know, I remember the first time I bought flip-flops. <laughs> really, truly, the first time I bought flip-flops, I was 33 years old. I'd never bought a pair of flip-flops. I owned a pair of hand-me-down flip-flops that my father had given me when I was 16. And I know you guys came here to hear about OA. This is OA to me. This is OA to me. Living a big, full, rich life is overused anonymous. It is. Letting myself and my life get bigger and expand is recovery in a way. So um, I own these red flip-flops. They didn't fit well. I had them since I was 16. They were hand-me-downs from my father. And this was 2002, 2003. And I don't know if you guys remember, but back then, the the rage was jeans and flip-flops. I don't know why we as a human species (laughs) had never discovered jeans and flip-flops together. But it was like, this was the new thing. And those were the flip-flops I had, and they didn't look good with my jeans, and I had to go buy some new flip-flops. And I remember I went into J. Crew and I bought four pairs of flip-flops, because it was like, hold the beach ball underwater for 30 years, and it's not going to, like, gracefully float to the top. There's going to be a big splash, you know? So... I bought four pairs, and to me, I had just binged. Out of, I was like, I, I'm, I'm, I literally called someone in OA, and I'm like, I'm a shopaholic, and I need to go get help. <laughs> That's funny to you, but it really felt real to me. That's just a short story, and she laughed, of course, like you're laughing now, and she's like, and I think I said something like, the floodgates have opened, and, and she's like, she's like, no, the floodgates haven't opened, but... that's just a story like that's how I work the program you know I call people I go to my and to me calling people is going to a higher power when I'm alone just alone in a higher power there's something that happens when I go to another if I'm in pain enough to go to another person and let another person see what's really inside of me then I know I'm really surrendering to a higher power so there's something that happens when I go to another person and tell the truth about what is in my mind or in my heart and that 
that that that's how I walk through that discomfort. You know, as I call, I write. I have gone through the steps more than once, probably about three times. Um, one of the biggest things I learned in my fourth step is um, this was kind of the big thing I learned in my fourth step and fifth step when I shared my fifth step was. Um, I mean, I learned a lot, obviously, but the big, big standout lesson for me was I remember writing, uh, let me just back up for a minute. I do believe for me as an anorexic, pleasure and joy is the most uncomfortable thing. I have 10 minutes, okay. Um, I really learned that. Like, I, I suffering the pain, so, and I had to suffer for a long, you know, for a while in recovery. I had to kind of like clean out the wreckage of what I'd been through as a child. But slowly over time, I started to see this kind of really good life emerge from recovery after probably seven, eight years. And I would still feel much more comfortable in crisis. And I would feel much closer to people in crisis. If I wasn't in crisis, I didn't, I felt lonely and I didn't feel connected to people. And I would often find myself like having a really good day and then suddenly not, just out of the blue. And I started to realize that I feel, felt and feel most vulnerable when I feel happy and when I feel pleasure and when I feel joy, when I feel love and when I feel safe. Um, and I, in my fourth step, that's what I wrote. I wrote, if I never let happiness in, then happiness can never be taken from me. And it's just that same thing of like, like that's my anorexia. That's, if I shrink away, if I have nothing, then I have nothing to lose. And to risk happiness, you know, to like risk a full rich life, to have something, to want something. I got a call from a, another recovering anorexic who's fairly new in the program, about a year or so. We talk a lot. She's a really good friend of mine. And um, she was talking about how uncomfortable it is for her to feel desire for something. Because if she really, truly desires something, it may or may not come true. It may or may not become hers. And that feeling of vulnerability to sit in that desire without whether or not it's going to happen. I always wanted to shut that down as an, as an anorexic and like have no needs. What a safe place to be. I have no needs. I need no one. I need nothing. And today my recovery is about, you know, letting myself have needs, letting myself have wants and desires and letting myself live with a full, rich life. And... Um, and rely on a higher power for that. You know, that, I always say that's when I most need a higher power, when things are going really well. That's when I most need a higher power, is when, when I, uh, and things are going well, I have a good life, and it isn't drama, it isn't boring. I mean, it, it is boring a lot of the times, and I have to sit in that serenity and that stillness. And, um, um, I, uh, I do have a really loving higher power today that I choose to call the universe. Um, I have a higher power that wants me to want things and wants me to take things in and wants me to enjoy this life. And I don't think that suffering is spiritual anymore. Um, and I just, I really have this like life beyond my wildest dreams. And it isn't like rocket to the moon, it's real. It's a real thing. It's not like a rush, like I thought it would be. I always thought a good life would be this constant rush. And it's actually really kind of still, and to use that word again, boring. You know, it's kind of like, 
Because I face myself in that stillness, you know. I when I'm when I've got a crisis going, I'm running from myself. And when I don't have a crisis, I'm in my body, and I'm kind of in. As good as my life gets, there's still dirt on the ground. You know what I mean? And um, so I'm really, really grateful to be here. And uh, I, I'm so grateful that OA happened to me. When I first came here, I really thought I got ripped off. You know, like I'm t- early in my, my early 20s, and I'm sitting in these damn meetings. And and um, and I don't see that today. I feel like I got really, really lucky. I got so lucky that I found abstinence and that... I have a life of recovery and abstinence. And I do want to say one more thing. I don't really want to end on this, and I do want to have a couple questions. Um, I don't want to end on this, but I I do want to say this about my my family of origin. Um, I don't blame my family for my anorexia. But I did come to see in my recovery that someone who means a lot to me in my recovery said that anorexia is what happens when you are forced to carry something that is not yours. And today, for me, the hardest thing for me was to not take responsibility for things that were not mine. Apologizing, making amends, that wasn't that hard, though I did make some good amends. That wasn't a real surrender for me. To really look inside of myself and say, you know, I don't really have a part there. That was the hard part for me as an anorexic. And today, I do not carry the sickness or the deeds of other people. I let the, uh, the, the people who enacted abuse in my life, I let it be theirs. I don't carry the burden of that today. And I have to say that's been a big, big part of my recovery. So um, I, I really am free to be myself today. And I'm really free to share who I really am with other people and to be this big, big guy. And I get to take up space and exist. And that really is a huge, huge huge statement of recovery. So thank you for letting me share. And um, yeah. does anybody want to ask a question? Yes. Thank you for your share. What you do to maintain that level of, uh, to maintain comfort with life being good mm. and not God, that's a great question. Thank you. Um, um, the question was, how do you maintain that how do you let life be good? How do you maintain letting life be good without self-sabotaging? Um, I mean, my first thought is it's been a process just to even see it. For a long time, I thought I was just genuinely struggling. Like, I thought this is just the struggle of life, you know? And I remember once I made an outreach call, and this woman said, I was, like, going on and on and on, you know? And, and, and she, she just very calmly said, and very kind of loudly over the phone, she went, you're okay, Dan. <laughs> and and I thought I thought those I, I would have thought that that would have offended me. I thought it would have. I mean, just hearing the words, I, it could have been heard as "get over it, you're okay." But I heard that that is not what she was saying. Mm-hmm. I heard she was saying, "You are okay. You don't have to fall apart anymore. You can be okay with being okay, and you can feel that vulnerability." So. That was a moment, but just becoming aware of it was huge, and talking about it, doing everything we do here, you know, calling about it. I've shared about it in my my home meetings for when I was living in Studio City were two anorexic bulimic-focused meetings in, um, in the morning, and I shared about that for years there, you know, about how uncomfortable I felt when, when things got good, and, and just everything we do, writing about it, doing inventories about it, 
Um, but ultimately, I think meditation is probably the, the best thing. And what I learned about meditation, I said earlier in my share that um, spirituality and meditation was part of this, got fused with my anorexia. For a long time, I couldn't meditate because I used meditation as that way of getting to that anorexic cloud of not needing anything and being like, hi, I'm an Aryan. All I need is air, you know? Like, like, I did that for a long time with spirituality. So it took me a long time to find out what true meditation is for me. And what meditation is for me is sitting with the discomfort. Sitting, if I'm uncomfortable with bigness and joy and I feel that vulnerability, sit with it and give it space inside of me. And, and, I don't, and meditation is when I stop running. I stop running from what's inside of me. So that helps a lot too. Thank you so much for sharing. Do you still struggle with body image like issues or obsession or is that relieved? It's pretty relieved. I would say it's pretty relieved. Um, my body is, I'm probably in the least best shape I've ever been and I feel the best about my body that I've ever felt. Um, I exercise moderately, but it's pretty much relieved. So, yeah. I mean, I'm trying to think how did it... And the answer of how I got there is just kind of everything I just shared about. Like, going... Just like with the food, I had to learn that my body dysmorphia had nothing to do with my body. I, I thought I was overweight, or I never thought I was overweight, but I felt gross about my body when my body, or whatever, you know the story. But, like, it's the same thing with food. I had to just kind of go to that deeper issue and use the tools of the program to try to go to what is the deeper issue for me. So, and it usually had nothing to do with, just like it had nothing to do with food, it had nothing to do with my body. It had to do with, you know, anger. It had to do with, you know, the stuff I shared about in my family. Horrific psychological abuse. I've had therapists tell me you, most people don't survive it. And they're not talking about the anorexia. They're talking about this mental spin that I was programmed I was programmed for. As a, it's from infancy. And to come out from under that, I've had therapists say you're lucky. You're lucky to alive. So that's what the body of Scorpio is about. We're good. Thank you guys so much.